this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 204, we're recording on Thursday, April 6th. I'm Jeff O'Neill, I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Hello, welcome back. Oh, thanks, thanks, thanks. I'm back. Uh, good show with you guys last night. I'm so sad I wasn't here for the Microsoft ebooks st- story. I know. I there think we some... were, we made some appropriately skeptical noises in your yes. honor. I, I, I appreciate that. I felt that. Um, we already got some email from people about the Microsoft thing. Uh, oh. Which, but most, mostly it was, isn't this ridiculous? I love hearing you guys talk about ridiculous ebook uh, <laughs> initiatives because it's, just, <laughs> it's like just such an. Uh, though a lot of people, uh, a lot, a few people did write in to say that they do read on their laptops at work. Okay. Um, or school or whatever, because, you know. I respect that sneaky reading. You do it. I seem to be working and making business fingers. And then, (laughs) and actually, you're reading (laughs) business fingers. fingers. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that's good. And and I guess the other thing is that the people who, um, there are a couple of people wrote in that they have a Surface Pro, which is a convertible laptop tablet thing. And they were wondering if maybe, you know, since Microsoft and the operating system, you know, knows all of your activities, that maybe they were seeing people use the Kindle app on those devices and say, hey, enough people are using our tablets for reading that we might as well, like, give them the option of buying stuff from us. So I thought that was interesting, too. That is interesting. I want Um, to salute all of you listeners who are stealth reading at work. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> for for those who are about to flip, we salute you. Um, let's see. Another quick, quick follow-up, too, is a mom's dad's grad's summer recommendation show will air 5-7. Well, that means we'll record it, you know, 5-3, 5-4. If yep. you don't know, May is the first, uh, the fifth month. So May 3rd or 4th is probably your deadline to get those in, um, you know. We like to do the two of these a year. We do one around the holiday time, and this is the other time we do it for summer recommendations for yourself, or you have a, someone you're buying a graduation gift, or the the parental holidays, or whatever you're looking for. Um, this is your uh, biannual chance to come uh, get recommendations from us. Send us email podcast at bookriot.com. Uh, let's do Casper. We got a lot. There's interesting stuff this yeah, week. Yeah, this is um, a good week this week. Good, good week this week. But let's talk about Casper first, right? So Casper is a mattress that's obsessively engineered at a shockingly fair price. It's got supportive memory foam that creates an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. You can try Casper for 100 nights risk-free in your own home. I mean, you're buying a mattress on the internet. You you, you need to take it home and try it out. Uh, And if you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. So you don't have to pay more shipping, get it back. There's no sort of breakage, frictional stuff. They're trying to get you to, once you got the mattress in your house, you have to keep it. They want you to love it. And if you don't love it, they want you to send it back. So they understand the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit, especially considering you're going to spend a third of your life on it. That's if you get eight hours of sleep. Free shipping and returns to the U.S. and Canada. I know the Canadians, we like to shout you out specifically when this stuff applies to you, but this does. Free shipping uh, and returns if you need to, but you probably won't. You probably won't need to return it. They've got over twenty 
thousand reviews with an average of four point eight four point eight stars. That's what they call social proof in the marketing game. The other people saying nice things, um, and it's quickly becoming the internet's favorite mattress. So you can get fifty dollars towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com/bookriot and using offer code book. Riot. So that's Casper with an E before the R. C A S P E R dot com slash book riot. Use offer code book riot then. So you got to go to that special URL, URL and use the offer code book riot one word. Terms and conditions apply. I don't know what those terms and conditions are, but whatever they are, they apply. You can find Thank, out. You can find out. Thanks so much to Casper for sponsoring the show. Never All have right. I longed so much to have a sponsor send us a free thing to test out. <laughs> Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> like, I guess so. I, 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 I guess uh, I have a the value over my Vorm, my value over replacement mattress. Mm-hmm. I've got a mattress I like right now, so uh, I'm trying to think what do I have that's yeah. like, you know, kind of like could use an upgrade. Uh, I'm not really sure. I, I, have to, I have to think about it, and I, you know, that's appropriate. And coffee all that maker. No, oh, I got that wired, yo. <laughs> my coffee <laughs> game's just, on point. Your coffee game is on point. You're, it's mm. very special. Uh, you know what? I, I need some new over-ear headphones. If anyone got oh. over-ear headphones they love you that covers your whole ear, I would love to do that. I'd love to have a good recommendation. Like oh, if Bose sponsored the like show, the, I could get some of those. You don't mean like the earbuds that wrap around your ear. You mean no, like the... No. The like, cans. They're like the biscuits that go Yeah, the biscuits. Ears. Yeah, the, the Leia special. Leia's. Yeah, I want some of those. If anyone has some they love, let me know. Also, uh, it, just so that you can tailor your recommendations specifically for me, I've got big ears. So I need, I need basically like two um, uh, pasta bowls uh, with speakers in them. That's, that's kind of what I'm looking for. Couldn't make them too big for me. And I will send a free Book Riot t-shirt to anyone who photoshops two pasta bowls onto Jeff O'Neill's headshot. <laughs> this is just a thing nice. I need in my life. And me like jamming out to, 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 old, to, old, to, to dad music, <laughs> to, oh, right. to Steely Dan. A little yacht rock. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Before, so let's go into the rest of the show. So we'll we got follow up to start the yeah, main yeah. part of the Last show. Last week, Amanda and I were talking about Hachette UK's diversity initiative that we were giving some side eye because it looked like the at least the piece that we were highlighting was about like teaching people of color how to submit things to agents, and we were talking mm-hmm. about the pipeline problem. And it did turn out that Hachette UK has done a more robust attempt at expanding diversity and inclusion over there. Um, A listener, thank you, Chris, sent us info about diversity in publishing in the UK. And it's about as abysmal as diversity in publishing here uh, Mm. in the US is. The report that he shared, and we'll link to it in the show notes, looks specifically at London and shows that while about 29% of the working population of London are Black or minority ethnic, only about 7.7% of those working in publishing are from a non-white background. And even worse, only 4% of editorial staff were found to be from a non-white background. 3% of senior managers were non-white. So Mm. they're having the pipeline issues over there in the UK as well. It's interesting to see these numbers and uh, I guess depressing to see that they're not really any better than the ones that we have over here. So thank you, Chris, for sending us actual numbers. That's wonderful. Uh, And anybody who is interested in more info about that, uh, stay tuned. I guess we're probably getting ready for the next round of like Publishers Weekly diversity reports. The Vita count should be out soon, right? I was going to say, Vita has been um, 
talking about their preparations for that report. I, I feel like that's a June thing normally. Mm. We've done this long enough now that we kind of have the circadian rhythms right. of the It just the feels like it should infra- be happening Where the soon. Pew report comes out and then the year-over-year stuff. So I feel like it's a it's an early summer thing. Uh, interesting website, too, uh, equalityandpublishing.org.uk, where they, mm-hmm. they um, track some of this stuff. Um, you know, we've said on the show uh, a bunch of times that diversity in publishing um, and and I, I kind of like moving to the vocabulary of equitable representation in publishing mm-hmm. um, is a, a multi-pronged problem. Like it needs to come from, you know, submissions and writers, but also on the publisher side. You know, you need people of a variety of backgrounds in publishing in order to have books from a variety of backgrounds and voices. Like it's not a, it's not a supply nor demand problem only it's both. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so any, any, any uh, initiative that just tackles one of them is necessarily incomplete, but also necessary in itself, but um, it has to come from all angles. So that's interesting to see. Thanks for sending that in. Um, I've also bookmarked this website to see what else is going on there. Uh, I guess this is the big book news of the. I mean, it's, oh, I'm so excited! <laughs> are you see? Okay, so Joe and Jill Biden, in the classic Biden ways, um, are doing like an Obama thing, but not quite as big. Like that's kind of the the thing here, right? Is like they did the same. Both of them are, I guess, on the same book deal. Mm-hmm. Um, they're both going to write a couple of books, and the it was packaged together for the advance, and it was. Um, Macmillan, or sorry, Flatiron. Yeah, which is a Macmillan imprint. Macmillan imprint. Um, and they got eight million bucks for two books a piece. Is that uh, do I have this two? Right? Joe is going to write two, and Jill will write one on this mm, deal. Mm-hmm. Okay, so for three books, they got eight million bucks. Uh, interesting. And I don't think Biden has a book yet. Does he have one? Has Not he that a book I before? know of, yeah. or I'd be listening to it on audio just when <laughs> I need to feel better it. about life. Uh, yeah, because. Uh, uh, President Obama, he's got two. I mean, if he had never, if he, I mean, of course, you were going to expect a White House memoir, but Audacity of Hope and Dreams of My Father, like, if we didn't get another Obama book, you, you'd have two really interesting, juicy ones, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of ground for uh, Joe, uh, the Vice President Biden, to, to, to pick up. Uncle and, Joe. And Dr. Jill Biden, she has been teaching this whole time. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, she's yeah, a she teacher, did not stop and I'm, I'm getting oh my, I'm getting autoplay of Steve Bannon. Oh in the no, background on this website. She teaches I that. I, um, she's a community program. college professor. Yeah, I think she teaches English. Even uh, I'm not. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think so. Uh, so I'm sure she'll have something to say about education and her time in the White House. Uh, not in the White House, but uh, uh, as the second lady. I don't think yes. that's what you say. You don't, do you say second lady? Yeah, mm-hmm. it's the first and second families. I guess I never really thought about that. I never never heard it referred to that way. Um, okay. And, you know, of course, they also have, and I don't know how much they're going to deal with it, but they have this tragedy at the center of their life, uh, the death of their son, Bo Biden, um, that, you know, deeply affected them. And it became a story. Well, yeah, it says um, um, in the Associated Press piece that uh, Joe Biden's first book will explore one momentous year when Bo oh. died in 2015 and his decision against running for president. And in the last week or so, Biden has given some interviews where he said that he believes he could have defeated Trump. Um, and mm. he doesn't regret the choice he made in the circumstances that he made it, but that yeah. he wishes that those had not been the circumstances that he had been able to choose to run um, mm. and that, you know, things would be 
different right now. That is gonna like I'm preparing. That's gonna be a five alarm snot bomb. Oh, all that's the way a, around. that's a snot bomb for sure. There's no question about that. It's an interesting historical what if. Like I'm not big into this game of like Bernie would have won or all this other stuff. Or, but it is an interesting what if if you know Bo, if Bo Biden doesn't die and Joe mm-hmm. Biden feels up to running. What does that three-way race between Bernie and Hillary and Biden look like? Uh, maybe Biden could have beat Trump in the the general election. Could he have beat Hillary in the the primary? I don't know. I mean, it wouldn't matter. <laughs> He'd have to beat her in the primary to get there. But it's a, it's a fascinating what if that, um, you know, because it would historically the the vice president of a two term president is the presumptive nominee uh, in most cases. So interesting people, um, you know, more books by people in power is interesting. And you know what I'm going to say now, which is, can all of them go on book tour together? You know the Bidens are down. <laughs> you, you know, you know Joe would. Joe's would, aviators would, are like Joe already would in love the car. To, to to ride shotgun if he could. The memes, um, Jeff. They should do it for the memes. <laughs> <laughs> the meme value would be extraordinarily high. There's there's no question about that. What did it say when it's coming out? Yeah, there's not a release date yet. Not a release date. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm ready. Oh, Joe Biden's Promises to Keep was released by Random House in 2007. Oh, okay. And Jill Biden had a book called Don't Forget, God Bless Our Troops, a picture book mm. in 2012. So they, they've already got it. I, I, I was going to say, people of this stature, they like, books just fall out of, you know, they, they just they just fall out. They get book publishing contracts and they, they publish stuff. That's just, you know, when you're that famous, that happens. Um, okay, where do you want to go next? You want to just go down the see. line? Yeah, let's just go down the line. Couple Why don't you tell me about have you, You've read this book. You've I have read this. this. I really loved this book. Um, Imbolo Mbue is the winner of the 2017 Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction for her novel Behold the Dreamers, which mm-hmm. was one of the big uh, advances that we heard about in 2015 for 2016 We talked about how this books. was a big advance that we didn't hear much about it, and right. here we are. <laughs> yeah, not much happened that I saw around the book when it was released. It was competing with Homegoing, which uh, very deservedly got a ton of attention yeah. uh, last fall. But just a terrific, I thought a really terrific book about um, an immigrant couple. He is uh, the chauffeur. Yeah, he's the chauffeur for um, mm. a man who is super high up at one of the banks during the financial crisis. Like, as a side note, we're starting to get a bunch of really interesting novels about the financial crisis in 2008 and 2009 yes, now. that's true. Um, so he's that guy's... It's been long enough. There's some perspective. Uh, but this, the immigrant husband is the chauffeur. He starts to see into some of the things that are going on, gets a hint that perhaps uh, all is not well, uh, at the same time that his wife is struggling with some decisions that she needs to make about their life and their child. Um, And they are with sort of two sides of the coin of the American dream. They uh, came to this country to, you know, try to find success. They've been just working their fingers to the bone and it doesn't feel like a dream at all. Um, But they see these very wealthy people that they are working for and um, also how miserable they are. Um, I love, I I just love a novel about sort of the dark side of the American dream. And I thought this was one of the best ones with um, really just Mm. interesting and well-drawn characters. So I'm super personally super excited to see her win this and to get this recognition hopefully when the i hope when the book comes out in paperback this year um that it will be more widely read and recognized um a great book for a book club conversation if you happen mm. to be in the market for one so congratulations to her the other um finalists were Viet Din for After Disasters Louise Erdrich for La Rose 
What Belongs to You by Garth Greenwell, and Your Heart is a Muscle the Size of a Fist by Sunil Yappa. So lots of good contenders there, but big congratulations to Mbolo and Bue. The Penn Faulkner is kind of the... Uh, it's kind of the court jester is wrong. It's a bit of a wild card when it comes to the major liter- American literary awards. Mm-hmm. Like you'll see a lot of crossover in the Pulitzer finalists, the National Book Award, National Book Critics Circle Award, and then the po- Penn Faulkner. It's not unusual for to have finalists that don't appear on any of the other finalist lists. Uh, and so that's I find it a really interesting, you know, uh, one of the interesting awards to follow in that way because you often will get. So uh, you're you're surprised if you're not surprised um, right. that you didn't get someone that has been getting a lot of award attention. So surprise! I guess it is surprising though that the Underground Railroad, which is sort of running away with the rest of the awards, not even nominated, not even a finalist, which is <laughs> which is fine. I mean, it's you know subjective and whatever. Um, I guess the is La the Rose, Fal- Yeah, I was going to say, is it debut? But it can't be because no, Louis Zerdrick. Be. Yeah, Lou Zerdrick has written several, um, you know, a bunch of novels. So. It's not, and just interesting to see that they just think they think about it differently. Um, mm-hmm. How they come to it, and they they come up with a different response. The Pulitzer should be coming out too. Uh, oh yeah, like quick. any day now. I'd be shocked if it's not the Underground Road. I, I mean, that's the Pulitzer usually gets behind the big literary. No- I mean, a big literary novel. And uh, I was just looking at the Publishers Week. That's not in arm's length. Um, and the Underground Road is still selling twenty, thirty thousand copies uh, a week. Um, it's it's really benefited. It's it's gone through and passed and beyond even just the Oprah bounce. Because then I was looking at Love Warrior, right, which was mm-hmm. came out uh, came out around the same time, but it had the Oprah, you know, uh, blessing mm-hmm. around the same time, and it's not selling anywhere near as well. So anyway, um, yeah, oh, I, I'm on hold. I'm I'm in hold. I'm on hold with Behold the Dreamers, the library, and I've got it's going to be. A while. <sighs> get to it it's so good i bet it's good on audio um mm. but yeah but i got the mothers like, today speaking of things that i've been meaning to read um brit bennett that we talked about on the good. show looking forward to that that's Looking. good business there um speaking this is a random oprah aside but yes. remember when the underground railroad came out and it was coming yes. out early because of oprah and we were like has this ever happened before mm. um i'm reading an essay collection right now called the double bind women on ambition that comes out um it comes out tuesday of next week on april well 11th, whatever that would be, whatever yeah. that Tuesday is. Um, and one of the essays is by Ayanna Mathis, whose novel, The Twelve Tribes oh, of Hattie, yes. was like the first book in the like Oprah book club reboot of Mm -hmm. several years back. But her essay talks about like that she had just published this novel. She was like a poor graduate student when the novel came out and she was told, you know, you're going to get a phone call from um, some major magazine wants to get a quote from you about your book at two o'clock on Thursday. So she was just waiting by the phone and at two o'clock on Thursday, her phone rings and it's Oprah who was like, hi, um, we're picking your novel to be an Oprah book club book. This is like years ago for the Oprah magazine mm-hmm. and I'm having it published early. So it has happened before. And it's Oprah just, said I'm having it published early. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, so like, like she didn't, Ayanna Mathis didn't even have it. She didn't even, she didn't even no. need to assent or, or uh, consent or no, no. <laughs> like, it's like it Oprah just... <laughs> calls her up and is like, your book is going to be the Oprah book club pick. Um, also I'm having your publisher release it early so that we can, I guess the book was supposed to come out in like January or February and Oprah is uh-huh. calling Ayanna Mathis in like the late fall. It's like, we're going to have it released, you know, in November, December so that it's out in time for the holidays. And we're going to be talking about the book club pick in time for the holidays as well. 
And I was like, oh, I should mention this on the show. Definitely. So the Oprah made the call herself. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You, we, we've speculated, you know, for years now about like, what are the, 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 the machinery yes, of yeah, something Oprah, like this happening? And Oprah made the are, call. Are you shocked that Oprah made the call herself? Oh. I would have thought they would have been some... You know, lackey's the wrong word, but someone in the the Oprah business. You know, it seems I would have guessed that it would either be Oprah or it would be just mm. like someone at the publisher, like your editor gets the news and gets yes. to tell you right. that it's happened. But in like it, this is a great it's a great essay for a lot of reasons in this book. But Ayanna Mathis is writing about like her girlfriend comes into the apartment while she's doing the interview and somehow picks up from the like from whatever she's managing uh. to say back into the phone to Oprah that it's Oprah on the other end. But like Oprah calls her. She's like covering gives, the she's like covering the receiver and like mouthing Oprah. Yeah, like that Oprah calls her, that Oprah quotes Toni Morrison from memory to her in the conversation. And the whole time she's just like, oh, my God, is this my life? Mm, wow. That's amazing. So, yeah. So Colson Whitehead, not the first one to get his publication mm-hmm. date moved up by Oprah. Oprah just has that power. Apparently. I do what I want. Yeah. And as a side note, if you're looking for a good essay collection about pr- women and professional issues, Double Bind is out on Tuesday and it's edited I, by I also Robin put a hold Rob. On that on your it is great. I'm a little hold crazy right now, though I will say I'm now a library power user. I, I think I've officially like reached my final form as a library power user. I've, I've got to say 15 holds is not enough. Oh, that's... That's that, a that, lot. That's a, the Multnomah County Library. They max you out at fifteen, but but if you're on holds for books that you know it's going to take forever. Like I just put uh, "Waking Gods" by Sylvain mm. Nouvelle, which oh, came yeah. out last You'll week. Oh yeah, you'll get that in like twenty twenty five. It's gonna. I mean, I think that's one of those deals where I'm going to end up buying it because at some point I'm gonna be like, you know what, I can't. But so I'm like number seventy on eight copies, and it just came out, so it's going <laughs> to oh, take buddy. forever. Um, and and I've been on the wait list for a long time with uh, the mothers as well. So that I just I can now commiserate with all of you library power users who have a relatively modest hold, you know maximum hold list. I have heard in in whisper and song of faraway lands like Nebraska where they have library systems with unlimited hold lists. Hmm. Oh, I'm on the hold list for for uh, Miss Marvel volume whatever I'm on. It's like. Uh, 500 holds on 11 copies. I'm like, okay, great. I'm just going to spend nine bucks on it and buy the trade. Okay, enough of um, Jeff's frustration time. That's that we don't we don't need to do. <laughs> I was just thinking about how satisfying I find the process of putting library holds on because it feels oh. like I'm doing something instant. But then half yes. the time, by the time the hold comes in, I'm like, oh, but I'm not in the mood for that anymore. <laughs> oh, really? See, yeah, as, uh, it's interesting because now I, uh, as you know, I've long been TBR zero, but a hold list is sort of a de facto TBR. Mm-hmm. So if, if if something I've been waiting on for a long time on hold, I kind of have to read it right there. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I feel I, morally obligated. I get too particular. Like I don't want mm. my reading choice to be dictated by what happens to show up on my hold yeah. list. I've also That's... realized that I think my favorite reading format, and this is even more specific. I mean, this is really getting down <laughs> into the the weeds of my um, rat's nest of a brain. I like hardbacks with that like library plastic cover thing on the dust jacket. Like, oh. I like that better than reading just a regular heart. I like to have the thing covered up. I don't know what that's about. What is that about? I don't know. I don't know. That's weird. It's, it's like the sound it makes. It feels official. I don't I, I, I think I'm going to buy some and just put my own books in those things. <laughs> I know what to get you for Christmas. Yeah, just like just like a roll of like 100 of those. But I, I don't know how this works. Like, do I have to go to a library wholesaler and buy like a whole roll of it? I, I don't know how this works. <laughs> 
We have That's some very librarian friends thing. that I'm sure can send you emails. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. The li- library wholesaler, I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure will me, get out, uh, reach out to me. Let me tell you about our next sponsor. Yeah, and let's we'll do, do a next couple uh, related stories. This next sponsor is called Love and First Sight. It's by Josh Sundquist. Uh, and his, this is his debut novel. Uh, he's a YouTube personality, author of some memoirs. One of them is called We Should Hang Out Sometime. Um, and in this novel, Love and First Sight, uh, Will Porter, who is a blind 16-year-old, he goes to his first day at a new school and accidentally gropes a girl on the stairs sits on another student in the cafeteria and somehow drives a classmate to tears. So high school can only go up from there, right? Uh, as mm-hmm. Will starts to find his footing, he develops a crush on a charming, quiet girl named Cecily. Then an unprecedented opportunity arises, an experimental surgery that will give Will eyesight for the first time in his life. But learning to see is more difficult than Will ever imagined, and he soon discovers that the sighted world has been keeping secrets. It turns out that Cecily doesn't meet traditional definitions of beauty. In fact, everything he'd heard about her appearance was a lie engineered by their so-called friends to get the two of them together. But does it matter what she looks like? Not really. So why does he feel so betrayed? This is told with humor and breathtaking poignancy. Love and First Sight is a story about how we relate to each other and to the world around us. Again, it's by Josh Sundquist, and it's Love and First Sight. It's out now. You can find a link in the show notes uh, or wherever Mm. books are sold. Okay. okay, where shall we go? So we, we got go some, now? I think, two related. Speaking of like equitable yes. representation in publishing, um, two interesting things, both coming out of the Mc, is St. Martin's Press part of Macmillan. I can never, it is, right? Mm, yes. Okay, so both of these are coming out of the Macmillan house this week. You would think after like a decade, I would have my mental map of imprints. It's just, it's impossible. It It really is impossible. So the first one is that uh, it was announced this week that St. Martin's Press and editor there, Monique Patterson, has acquired the first official Black Lives Matter book. Um, It is called When They Call You a Terrorist. This was a Mm. high six-figure deal for Patrice Mm. Calors. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, who's one of the founders of Black Lives Matter. It's a memoir, um, and she is writing it with... um, with a journalist or with journalist band. What is this word? Are you looking at this piece? It is yeah, being written? there's some, there's some kind of weird. Oh, you know what? I think, um, that writer intentionally lowercase is their last name. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Bandela, uh, so, I'm guessing. B-A-N-D-E-L-E. So she's writing it with a journalist whose last name is Bandela. Um, yeah. Angela Davis will be writing the foreword. Uh, Monique Patterson won this book at auction. There were six other houses bidding mm. on it. So that's great. Um, good for her. The memoir will be sort of the first official book out of the Black Lives Matter movement from one of the organizers. And it looks like they're working on um, international rights to the title as well. So that will certainly be interesting. Um, that's coming out. And then this week also Macmillan launched their reading without walls initiative. It's a nationwide program celebrating reading and diversity. And this is kind of a a, like miniature version of basically the read harder challenge. Mm -hmm. Um, for kids and families. Um, it's pointed at teachers, librarians, booksellers, and readers 
find something new and different to read. Um, so they give three suggestions. One is read a book about a character who doesn't look like you or live like you. The second is read a book about a topic you don't know much about. And the third is read a book in a format that you don't normally read for fun. So a chapter book, a graphic novel, a book in verse, or an audio book. Once you finish reading, you complete the challenge by challenging someone else. So that's cool. A little mm -hmm. pay it forward uh, involvement. And you can use the reading without walls hashtag to share the challenge and the books that you're reading with your friends. There's also an activity kit that you can download um, online from read.macmillan.com. Read um, Gene Lewin Young is the, what he's the ambassador for children's National literature. National ambassador for young people's literature. Yeah. Young and people's writes literature. For, writes for us. Yeah. Writes for us from time uh, to time. You know, an amazing comics artist. Mm -hmm. uh, he does the intro uh, announcement here on the site about what uh, reading without walls is, but a very cool initiative coming out of Macmillan um, this week to specifically encourage um, kids and their parents and teachers and librarians to um, broaden their reading horizons. Mm -hmm. I love everything about this. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. I should download that activity kit to see what oh, you my should. kids might be interested in. Checking that out. Well, especially um, since you've got a readathon champ in your house. Yeah, we do. <laughs> uh, insider baseball time. We talked about Shelfie mm -hmm. shutting. Did we talk about them shutting down already yes, on the show? We did. Uh, formerly Bitlet. This is these are the folks that you know. You take a picture of your the title page of your book with your signature on it, and you could get a free or discounted ebook version. Basically, trying to do an end around to bundle right, sort of mm -hmm. a post hoc bundling. Process postdoc bundling is a good show title. Um, uh, Rakuten, which is the basically the shorthand is they're kind of the Japanese Amazon. Um, also, who owns Kobo? Who bought Kobo from Indigo Publisher, uh, Indigo Bookstores? You know, a few years ago, bought Shelfie. Um, it's not clear if they're going to use the tech uh, or the product, or if this is an acquihire or what. But the the spirit of Shelfie will live on somewhere. It's not just going to fade into the 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 bad publishing experiment ether um it's going to be part of a larger global conglomerate um which is interesting you know there might be something to do there i mean by all accounts shelfie worked right mm -hmm. like it just it had some limitations that i think prevented it from being a thing but it was you know it was actually kind of an interesting idea it was creative um the tech you know the photo recognition everything seemed to work just it was so limited now if Kobo can do something and the the resources they have, you know, who knows? Maybe yeah. Kobo wants to build it in, like take a picture of your print books on our shelves and we can get a Kobo version for two ninety nine of anything cool. you have on your shelf, mm -hmm. right? Because Kobo has been trying to get into the U.S. market, especially they, they have a lot of market share in international, uh, internationally, especially in Canada, where Amazon actually struggles in a lot of those places, which, so there's, the the battle for ebook market share is not really happening in the U.S. because um, it's largely an Amazon with um, Barnes and Noble and Apple kind of like getting the scraps, but there is there is room in other countries for someone to be the number one ebook seller. So mm -hmm. maybe as part of that larger struggle, 
you know, Shelfie's getting uh, drafted in, into the, yeah, into there's the ranks. An, there's an interesting quote relatively far down in this piece from um, the CEO of Rakuten, Michael Tamblin, who said that the acquisition will allow us to expand our ecosystem by incorporating Shelfie's innovative advances in book recommendation, discovery, and bundling, which is especially mm-hmm. interesting considering our large network of bricks-and-mortar bookselling partners. So maybe this is a step, um, since Kobo is in so many Canadian bookstores and also in the indies here in the U.S., maybe it's a step towards ebook bundling for those yeah. uh, bricks-and-mortar sellers. Buy your hard copy of The Mothers and get your discounted ebook version um, all in one go. That would be very cool. Yeah, really I really loved the, like, I loved the creativity behind the birth of Shelfie. Yes. Um, and we, you know, we rehashed a couple of times sort of why it didn't work and the lack of publisher buy-in that would um, be required to make something like that really go. So I hope that it gets renewed life in a place where it could actually have a chance at thriving. Yeah, and in hindsight, knowing what we know about the sort of the immovable pillars of the book the book, 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 book publishing industry as we know it, if you would have said to me, can someone who's trying to do an end-around bundling succeed without the leverage that being one of the big five publishers or one of the giant retailers provides, I would have said no. Like in the things you need to make this work, you need big-time buy-in. Um, and leverage so that as part of its deals with, you know, Hachette or whoever, Kobo could say, or Rakuten could have said, well, and w- w- you have to also participate in our Shelfie program, right? Because that was always the problem, like, as you said, in, in our, and now I guess our third rehashing of this is there just weren't <laughs> enough titles, right? There's right. just, there, was, there wasn't enough butter to spread over the bread of making it useful on a regular basis. So in hindsight, I think that was one of those mistakes that, you know, I, I I guess what they were hoping is they would get enough network effect. You have a user base, and then you sort of have your own leverage, right? I'm going to bring these 500,000 readers to your books if you just give us the the deal. But that sort of thing is very, very difficult to do, is very difficult to do. So um, it'll be interesting to see if there's anything that actually comes out of this or they get they get engulfed into the, the you know, the machinery of making Kobo what it has to be to be a international ebook retailer. Okay, that's I, I'm fascinated to see what goes. Yeah, on it'll there. be really um, interesting. Speaking of things that we get from time to time, mm-hmm. uh, America's most literate city again. Yes, Washington D.C. Um, there's two of these that we follow. There's the one. There's the Amazon one, and this one is the Central uh, Central Connecticut State University's study. This is their 13th annual study. Um, DC topped the list with then Seattle, Minneapolis, Atlanta, and San Francisco, uh, rounding out the top five. The set of factors that the study measures is, is use of their literacy and thus presents a large scale portrait of our nation's cultural vitality. Uh, they do, let's see, what's it's, I uh, looking it's for at the top? Here. It's a number of bookstores oh, in a city. Right. The population's education attainment, newspaper circulation, library resources, and more. And our old pro, our old uh, knit to pick with this is newspaper circulation. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. I mean, because it's not really consumption, right? This right. is all. Of, I guess the only one that's a sum, consumption is newspaper circulation. Assume people read that, but like number of bookstores in a city doesn't really tell you anything, except there are a lot of bookstores there. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I don't know. We, we've gone back and forth about these. We talk about them because, I don't know, is this better than no data? That's what, that's what I'm <laughs> honestly wondering. Is it? I don't know. I don't. I mean, I guess it means some... I, I, I feel, feel like, like it's just mislabeled is what I usually yeah, end up feeling I don't really know about what this it. Is. Like, 
knowing how many bookstores are in a city, how educated the population is, how many people get newspapers and like whatever the details are that they get from libraries basically tells you like how possible is it to be a literate person in this city or like how easy do they make it to have Except a chance? Except not really because education attainment and news, I mean, you could get a newspaper wherever. Right. Theoretically, right. Or like I what's mean, the, there's some sort of, un, I can't name the variable here, but it's it's really not like most literate. The most literate label here is wrong. Yeah. Um, but I can't quite put my finger on what I think the correct well, what the label mi- for the this would is, be. Well, what the mix is is between sort of the available resources for people who like to read. That would be one thing. Like, like if it was just number of bookstores and book libraries. Yeah, yeah, best place to be a book lover would be, I guess, you know, events, bookstores, libraries, right? Mm-hmm. That yeah. that would be that. And then the other one would be that has the sort of the most, the, which city is the most book loving, which be, would be something like the number of books they read in a year. That right. would be it, right? Yeah. And I guess... And this is sort of neither fish nor fowl because it mixes education attainment and newspaper circulation with the availability of book resources, which doesn't seem right to me. And I wonder why we don't get that information when Pew comes out, because those are nationwide studies. So presumably they could yeah. break out by state or by you know what it is? It's sample major size. metropolitan area. I bet it is. I bet it's the sample sizes are too small, too small. in the individual cities, but they work yeah. when you aggregate them. Well, it's like that USC Dorn's Life poll during the election. Like there was, did you read that story about like there was one black guy in that study? Oh, right. And so like however he was voted then became basically how that model predicted black people on the whole would vote. So it was all screwed up. Um, so, I mean, if in one of those Pew studies where they do, I think they do multiple thousand people, but mm-hmm. if you get one person from, say, Omaha, right, who's like a professor of literature there, which is completely possible, like you could have weird oh, stuff yeah. like this happen, suddenly Your Omaha would Omaha be like the crazy most literate city. Off. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> so you'd have to do, you'd have to do sample sizes for the major mo- metropolitan areas, which are representative and that you get into a, you know. 50,000 person. All right, a major. A major, major. Why can't there just be reading questions on the census? <laughs> well, then self-reporting, right? Right. Well, yeah, right. Then we have all sorts of other problems. <laughs> this feels like a good time it. to remind our friends who are listening yeah, that if you enjoy this, this kind of nerdery and like obsessing about sample size, this seems like fun to you. Uh, we are continuing our read through Thinking Fast and Slow, basically our two-head book club mm-hmm. um, over at our side hustle, but which is, isn't really a hustle. It's a side no, project. <laughs> it's a non-hustle. Um Better Living Through Books is the podcast. You can search for that in your podcatcher or go to bltb.fireside.fm. We're kind of going through it a couple chapters a week on most episodes. Uh, This most recent one, we just did a chapter about the law of small numbers and sample sizes. So if you're like, what the heck are they talking about? Sample sizes. And of course, my critique of this based on sample sizes is probably also just recency bias because we just talked about that chapter. Like it's it's biases all the way down. Yeah, I've been primed. I've been been primed to, to think about sample sizes. Uh, anyway, I don't know. I think it is interesting, though, that DC usually comes out on top of this one and the Amazon The Amazon one, one. And yeah. we also know this because DC the and the larger DC metropolitan area, Northern Virginia, parts of Maryland, whatever, there's a lot of really highly educated rich people who are lobbyists and government employees and business. The capital you know, is a center of gravity for people who read books and buy books and have advanced degrees. So it's not a surprise there. And it's, it could be right. It could be, I mean, it could be that if we got 
somehow the magic number from on high that said, here's the number of books on average people in these cities read. It could be that DC still comes on, out on top. I, I wouldn't doubt that at all. My, my, my suspicion, though, would be, just like law of small numbers would say, that it would be some random small town, right? That just mm-hmm. because of randomness has more book it's lovers like- in it than some other one. It's like wherever Goodreads Karen lives. And, yes. Well, <laughs> and I mean, where does Liberty live? Study. Like, she has to throw oh, right. off the. Yeah, she right? would. Yeah, if you if you're sampling in we, Maine, I, we won't say for because of creepy reasons. <laughs> but like, she lives in a small town. Yeah, in Maine. In Maine, um, and she she alone. Like, if she got picked for one of these samples, like it's all screwed up. Yeah. If they yeah. were going to take like ten people from the state of Maine, and one of them was Liberty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Oh man! All right. Well, let's. <laughs> I don't even know where to go from there. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. We, we're, well, I mean, we can go by the similar deal. A similar kind of problem and interesting is Audible mapped the mm-hmm. genre popularity by state um, of the fifty states in this uh, nation of ours. Um, you know, again, what's interesting about this is it shows low to high popularity of a specific genre, and interestingly, the larger states tend to have lower relative popularity of genres. And I think probably because the size of the state mediates any randomness, right? Yeah, regression to the mean. Regression to the mean. Um, So horror, you know, so like as an example, this says that for uh, you, let's look at, uh, here we go. Yeah, good. Wyoming, right? Likes uh, sci-fi fantasy much more than average. But Mm -hmm. they also like horror much more than average. Um, and they also like amateur crime fighters much more than average. They also like, I don't know, there's something weird going on. I mean, I don't know that there's, why would it be that people in Wyoming like paranormal romance more than people in Colorado? Like, yeah, I don't understand is... what the story, I don't understand how this is. Why, well, is right, the, like, why is a state a meaningful unit of literary right. interest? I don't get it. Because it maps nicely onto a graphic. Yes. I mean, it's a it's a, actually a lovely little site to play with because you scroll yeah, up and it's... down and the, the things blink and blah, blah, blah. Um, but so Arkansas likes uh, crime fighters, amateur crime fighters, much more than the nation at large. But they like, um, uh, what was the one? They like, uh, I was just looking at it. They don't like the Ar- Arkansans. Hmm. <laughs> they like what is it? just sorry. Amateur yeah, fighters. Kind of... Oh, but they don't like um health and fitness. Okay. Or fairy tales. Weird. I don't know. It's it's strange. Yeah, and Virginia is like in the middle of all of them of every genre, sort of moderate liking yeah, right. for everything, which seems about right if you're kind of if you're making guesses about population size affecting how these results shake out. And New York likes everything less than average except health and fitness. Well, that also seems right. Uh, <laughs> I, guess, <laughs> I guess. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there must be some I'm guessing what this is happening here is the states are actually a cipher for some other Mm-hmm. demographic situations, right? And that's how we think of this. It's like, bec- Wisconsin doesn't mean anything other than what the people in Wisconsin are, and they, you know, have its have its own economy and local industry right. and mm-hmm. racial and ethnic and religious divide. I'm just not sure. I, this would be interesting to see based, I think, maybe on other kinds of things like age. Or like even if they just controlled for population size. Yeah, because we don't even know how this is. I mean, Audible never gives us numbers because they're Amazon and whatever. So this is all rel- just relative, average. I-, I don't know what is being measured here. 
um, necessarily because California doesn't like anything except health and fitness more than the rest of the country. But it could be because it's so large, it just sort of is the control group, right? 65 million, I think, or so inhabitants will, um, you know, will regress to the mean, um, especially relative to, say, Wyoming, which I think is, has 600,000 people in it, maybe? I'm not really sure. All right, but you can play with that. We'll put in the show notes there if, you're, if you want to. Yeah, you can do a noodle. If you want to um, abstractly scroll and yet know it's... Uh, it's uh, virtues. Let's do another sponsor. I'm excited about this sponsor. I'm putting this on hold on my library too in my great hold uh, binge. It's called The Baker Street Four. Um, it's a new graphic novel um, f- coming over from from Europe. So it's from Inside Editions and uh, Inside Comics, excuse me. And it's been published in Europe, but it's coming to the U.S. for the first time. It's by Oliver Legrand, um, J.B. Dijon, and David Etienne, I believe. Those are French names, Frenchish pronunciation. They gave me a, a Le Gras, sorry, sorry, Le Gras, Le Gras, and Atien. Anyway, the thing to know, it's called The Baker Street Four, and it is a graphic novel version of the stories of the Baker Street Irregulars. If you know from the Sherlock Holmes stories, um, they're the, you know, basically this group of street kids that help out. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, they'll get information, they'll go run errands, they kind of the eyes and ears on the ground of Victorian London. Well, this is a graphic novel version of their stories. And I really like these kinds of stories. In fact, I just read uh, Longbourn um, by Joe Baker, which is the story of Mm -hmm. Pride and Prejudice from the service point of view. So I always like these like canonical tales told from a different point of view. And that's, that's what these is. It has its own story. Um, and you know, one thing to know, it's, European comics are a little bit different than American comics. So like they tend to have, you know, higher quality paper stock, like higher production values on the whole. Um, so you, you check this out, you're getting, this is something you might want to check out in paper, especially, but you know, it's, it's a little bit of a different experience. So if you haven't read a European, uh, graphic novel, this is an interesting way of getting into it. Of course, it's, it's translated into English so that, you know, we can understand it. Um, areas of gray, uh, and the story that Billy, Charles, and Tom are these inseparable Baker Street irregulars, and they, you know, they deal with conmen and scoundrels in London's East End, and one of their girlfriends is kidnapped, and then they have to, like, use their own, they don't go through Sherlock Holmes and Watson, they have to kind of do it on their own, but you also get some, you know, mentions of larger stories and characters that you know and love. Uh, it's been, it's a bestseller in Europe, numerous awards um, in, in 2012 when it came out, but just now coming to the U S for the first time. So really excited about this, the Baker street Four um, from insight comics, go find it. You'll enjoy it. Yeah. They sent me a copy of it. I should pass it on to you. It is really Oh, They gorgeous. didn't send me a copy. <laughs> is it right. the, you know, that's my fault. <laughs> Oh, of course. Okay, well, that's fine. Our good coworker Devin asked me, and I was like, "Jeff doesn't do TBR, so don't worry uh, well, about it." Well, you know, it is a new me. It's, you can't be blamed. I skyped you. I skyped on you. I updated my firmware, and I didn't give you a notice about what's in the change notes. But it's cool. I still have it. I can send it to you. Yeah. But I can tell you, it really is a gorgeous book, and the production value is excellent. Mm. Uh, so I'm I'm glad that I got to see it before we did this uh, number. You know, I hadn't really put it together how much you really do like shifted perspective narratives. Yes, I do. I do. Well, the, I... Can we do a, do we do we have to cover anything else? Do we have five more minutes to do yeah, a random we have five tangent? More that's Let's kind of related. That's kind of related to this, and I do like shifted perspective. And it got me thinking when I was reading the the notes for that read, but also then talking about Longbourn. But then some recently on the Book Riot contributor channel, someone was looking for 
I guess I don't even remember what what I I don't remember what they were writing a post about something, but they were looking for classic tales or stories told from a different perspective, like very much like this. And I suggested the Penelope ad by Margaret Atwood, which is the story of the Odyssey told from Penelope's point of view. And it got me thinking again about copyright, weirdly, mm. because you know, can anyone honestly say that the Sherlock Holmes whatever, you know, our, our, our canonical understanding of Sherlock Holmes or Jane Austen or the Iliad have been damaged by being in the public domain, right? And the answer to me is in an unequivocal no. If yeah, anything, it's so been either. enriched, right? Because mm-hmm. um, I also like, you know, I've read, uh, excuse me, I, I watched the Sherlock show, which the, the Cumberbatch Martin Freeman one. Uh, Michelle and I watch Elementary, which is the, Ameri- you know, Johnny Lee Miller and um, Lucy Liu. Uh, you know, the Pride and Prejudice, all the you know, all the various Pride and Prejudice spinoffs there've been. I, I also read Death uh, Comes to Pemberley by P.D. James, which is a murder mystery set in the world of Pride and Prejudice. Like, and I've, I, I just like you know these stories that I know and love, and I've taught Pride and Prejudice. I love Pride and Prejudice, so I, I can do it similar with the Iliad. And it just got me thinking. Again, one of the arguments made about why we have copyright is one reason is that so creators intellectual property can benefit from the you know fruits of their labor totally get that but another sort of argument is that you get control over your ip and what will happen if like anyone can write fiction based on the characters or whatever and it really seems to me that the opposite is true that the, the people like Cory Doctorow who argue for things being in public domain faster i am more and more of that persuasion because I just don't see it. I can't think of a case where some grand literary tradition or grand literary character or book really was sort of irre- irrevocably damaged by being made available for people to write other stories about. I just can't think of one. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's too bad because we're in this weird, I don't know how much people know about intellectual property. I don't know who would, but like this year when the, when the, the calendar turns to January one, you would expect because of the way copyright laws work for new things to come into the public domain. Well, in America, there's this weird thing where this year there's no new literary works are coming to the public domain. That's so weird. I didn't realize that. Yeah, because of the way the the, the laws written, and Disney's a big lobbyist because they don't want basically Mickey Mouse to come into the public domain. So they always lobby when it's about time for Mickey Mouse to come in the public domain. You know, they they um, <coughs> monkey and Mickey with it um, a little <laughs> bit. So like. It's really amazing. Like we do, we get books like Baker Street Four or Death Comes to Pemberley or Longbourn or I can't even. There's like so many. You know, uh, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies or the the Troy with Brad. You know, Odyssey, the graphic mm-hmm. novel, which is um, you know the Odyssey in space, which is really interesting oh, as well. And there was the take, like sort of the gay take on the Odyssey a yeah, couple the of Song years of ago. Yes, yeah, Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller, which I also really enjoyed and really liked. Like. I don't know. It's sort of frustrating that there's this line in the sand that's around, I think, I think it's like 1923, because like the Great Gatsby is like right on the line. Like it really should be in the public domain, but because of reasons it's not that are dumb. Like think if it were, think if the Great Gatsby was in the public domain, does anyone really think we wouldn't get a whole bunch of interesting takes on the Great Gatsby? Well, like, this was like early in Book Riot, we either had the conversation or you wrote a piece about like shifted perspective stories yes, that should exist. Post, and the yes, one right. that like everyone wants is the is Gatsby from Daisy's yes. point of view. I called it Beautiful Fool because she says, wouldn't it be great just to be yes. Beautiful Fool? It's like, that should be what it's called. It should be it Daisy's should perspective. Totally. And like, that would be super interesting for someone to read or write. Um, so anyway, like, oh, uh, Finn, um, which is, you know, uh, the, mm-hmm. t- the story of Huck Finn, from the dad's point of view, you know, Huck Finn's abusive, crazy, not crazy, but like 
I don't know, menacing father figure. An interesting addition to the, I guess, ecosystem of literary takes on Huck Finn. Anyway, that's my, it's not really a rant, but more of my realization. Speaking of, I now have a TBR, and I'm also apparently a um, zealot for things getting into (laughs) public domain faster. I don't even know. You 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 change over time, you're different. I don't know what to tell you. And I think the proliferation of fan fiction and the cultural sort of move towards accepting fan fiction could shift that as well. Like, who knows how long it would take copyright law to catch up um, with that. But if the way that we're, we as a culture are thinking about like what happens when people who love a piece of work build out the universe or imagine the characters in new Mm. ways or, you know, imagine what if Achilles is gay. um, It's, we, we have plenty examples now that it doesn't, kill the legacy of the original, just like Lady Ghostbusters didn't ruin original Ghostbusters. But the way that we're thinking about that really is different. And there are so many more examples now than I think probably existed in the past. There's so many more ways to make those Mm -hmm. new stories and to disseminate them. So I wonder, like, if anyone is listening to this who knows things about copyright law or like how copyright law is changed or could be changed, or maybe it won't be changed ever. Like, I would (laughs) love to, if you'll email us, podcast at bookriot.com. Yeah, if this tell is us, a like, special hobby yeah, horse or are, area yeah, of expertise. Like, tell us, uh, like, yeah, people are trying to change this so that these kinds of books could exist or it'll never happen for XYZ reasons. That would be really interesting to know. But I think it is right around Gatsby because I think, because um, I think like Henry James and Edith Wharton or like one of them is is and isn't. Like there is, there's a, like there's a couple of novels that on one side of the line, it is in public domain on one side of the line. It isn't, uh, which is super interesting, right? But like, clearly, anything from the nineteenth century is in the you know Dickens, right? Another good example. A lot right. of interesting takes and variations, all of which I think just goes to solidify, if anything, uh, you know, Moby Dick has various iterations, solidify the the place of those those stories in the canon because they're available for derivative works. Um, Anyway, that that's my, I don't even know, armchair thought, whatever. But uh, it, it occurs to me that the Baker Street 4 is a really good example of, you know, this is not something that's built into the Holmes estate's claim to whatever, that, you know, these these guys can write a graphic novel and, and illustrate it and take another take and take some piece of it without needing the Ian Fleming estate or the Harper Lee estate or the Raoul Dahl estate to sign off in it and get their little slide, get to wet their beak in it. Um, so to speak, uh, anyway, so that's our show. Yeah. Let I us guess. know which shifted perspective yeah, story you, have one you, that you are really like. For. I could, I, I am interested in your shifted take, um, favorite. The one that I want is for, um, what is the name of the daughter in the Scarlet Letter? Hester Prynne's little girl. Uh, Pearl. I want, yeah, I want Pearl like as an angsty fifteen-year-old. You, you, you're saying you don't want Paul D's version from <laughs> Beloved? Oh, oh, I know, right? I had never even thought about mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I super do. I yeah. super. Super do. Although I'm not ready for anyone who's not Toni Morrison to touch Toni Morrison characters. I just want her to write Paul D's version. <laughs> and well, while I mean, we're talking that, about that would be the kind of example, right, that maybe would make us uncomfortable. But would it really damage the legacy of Beloved if someone no, smart just, wrote a Paul D no, version? It wouldn't. It wouldn't, right? And like, it's not going to hurt. It's not going to impinge upon her ability to make money from Beloved, I wouldn't say. Yeah, no. Yeah. But I mean, oh, I, now I really you and I are both covetous of and protective of, I mean, 
Well, because we, if, if we're not, look what'll happen to her. She's in right, danger if right. we don't. Like, yeah, we do can't something. have until we we need to protect yeah. Tony. And we're, we've both been longing for Marilyn Robinson to finally do. Oh, of course, I'm blanking on characters' names. Yeah, now. I am um, too. The Botton son, Jack Botton. Yeah, Jack Botton. Story. His perspective. Um, but, right, and if she doesn't get around to it or doesn't want to do it, we're gonna have to wait like ninety five. <laughs> Oh, you know what? I just realized that I want to get Jack Watton's story about his family in St. Louis. Marilyn Robinson's Willa Cather fan fiction. Um, I hate to break it to you, but I think (laughs) Gilead is is (laughs) Marilyn Robinson's Willa Cather fan fiction. Yeah, that's an example. I think Willa Cather might be in the public domain. You might be able to, you might be able, if you wanted to write My Antonia from Antonia's point of view, you might be able to do Mm -hmm. it. Um, anyway, all right, that's our show. Oh, Thanks or to like our sponsors. Stoner from the wife's perspective. Ooh, oh, there are a lot of wife's perspective we need out there. A whole mm-hmm. bunch of them. Whole <laughs> bunch. Uh, thanks to Casper. Go to casper.com slash bookriot. C A S P E R slash bookriot dot com slash bookriot and use offer code bookriot to get 50 bucks off. Uh, thanks to Love and First Sight for sponsoring the show and the Baker Street 4, which led us down a, um, rabbit hole and i guess speaking of derivative works is the phrase going down a rabbit hole is that an alice in wonderland reference or is that exist apart from where is there some other context oh. in which going down a rabbit hole means going into this thing and getting lost and off with their heads from the queen of hearts it must be I an alice in wonderland just assume thing, right? it's alice in wonderland i never really thought about it until just now that that must be where that comes from um speaking of derivative works where you can do interesting things with uh, it, ironically, too, one, one more boy. One more point about the hypocrisy of Disney being all <laughs> welcome over. Back, like, Jeff. welcome. The the, iron, the irony isn't no. It's not irony. It's a hypocrisy, which is uh, bad irony. Uh, of Disney being the sort of the vanguard of protecting IP is no one's made more money out of public domain works than Disney. Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, The Lion King, which is basically a Hamlet ripoff. Snow like White. we can go on and on. Alice in Wonderland. Yep. Anyway. All those fairy tales. Darn, darn you, Walt. Just shake your fist, my friend. All right, we'll talk to you guys later.